So, I wonder if I ask you what was the most translated book in the world is, um, translated in most languages. So, hopefully many of you would guess rightly the Bible. Um, and then if I ask you what's the second most uh, uh, translated book in the world, some of you might say, well it's obviously Harry Potter, that's very successful, or maybe uh, 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 a more um, sort of informed decision would be, oh perhaps it's the Quran or uh, uh, perhaps another long-standing book. Well, actually, the second most translated book in the world is this one, which is uh, the Spanish comedy Don Quixote. And I've uh, uh, read from it in the past, and, and uh, some of you may have read it. Um, it's a fantastic book. Um, it's basically the tale of a man of midlife crisis. Uh, he reads all these romantic stories of knights and wizards, and all that sort of Arthurian legendary stuff. Um, and he feels, you know, what the world needs is more of that. And so he decides to reenact things. Um, and uh, he longs in his heart to do magnificent deeds uh, worthy of epic stories. He longs for stories to be told around the campfire of all the things he gets up to. But again and again, do you know what he does? He just proves himself a fool. Um, he, uh, amongst his various escapades, he valiantly helps jailbreak a uh, vicious criminal, so that one goes too well. Uh, he discovers a lion as part of um, sort of a, a, a circus, and he uncages it and hopes to fight it, and the lion just lazily turns around in its cage and shows the uh, wannabe knight its backside, um, and he goes round with uh, what he thinks is a magic helmet, which, which is really a barber's basin. So he really does uh, um, strike out again and again. Now, the most famous incident in possibly the most famous novel ever written um, occurs in this. It's the story um, that occurs in chapter 8. So, uh, I want you to picture, so you've got this guy, um, he's sort of nearing 50, um, he wants to be a knight, um, and he's going around looking for quests, and uh, he's got like a, he's got a mate, a kind of a servant uh, called Sancho Panza. And so they're, they're going around the uh, Spanish landscape looking for, uh, for epic things to do. And so they caught sight of 30 or 40 windmills standing on the plain. And as soon as Don Quixote saw them, he said to his squire, Fortune is directing our affairs even better than we could have wished. For you can see over there, good friend Sancho Panza, a place where there stand 30 or more monstrous giants. And I will fight them, and uh, I will take their lives, and with the booty we shall begin to prosper. For this is a just war, and it is a great service to God to, to wipe such a wicked greed from the face of the earth. Sancho Panza replied, What giants? Those giants you can see over there, replied the monster, with the long arms. There are giants with almost six miles long. Look you here, Sancho retorted. Those over there aren't giants, they're windmills. And what look to you like arms are sails. When the wind turns them, they make the millstones go round. It is perfectly clear, replied Don Quixote, 
that you are but a novice in the matters of adventure. They are giants, and if you are frightened, you can take yourself away and say your prayers while I engage them in fierce and arduous combat. So saying this, he set spurs to his horse, Rocinante, not paying any attention to his squire, Sancho Panza, who was shouting that what he was charging were definitely windmills and not giants. But Don Quixote was so convinced that they were giants that he neither heard his squire Sancho shouts nor saw what stood in front of him. Even though he was by now upon them, instead he cried, Flee not, O vile and cowardly creatures, for it is but one solitary knight who attacks you. A gust of wind arose, the great sails began to move, and Don Quixote yelled, Though you flourish more arms than the giant Pererius, that's an ancient Greek storm god, I will make you pay for it. And so saying, and commending himself with all his heart to his lady Dulcinea, begging her to succour him in his plight, well protected by his little round infantry man's shield, and with his large couch, he advanced at the horse's top speed and charged at the windmill nearest him. As he thrust his lance into his sail, the wind turned it with such violence that it smashed the lance into pieces and dragged the horse with its rider in it. And Don Quixote went rolling over the plain in a very sore predicament. Sancho Panza rushed to help his master at his donkey's fastest trot and found he couldn't stir. Such was the toss that the horse had given him. For God's sake, said Sancho, didn't I tell you to be careful? What were you doing? Didn't I tell you they were only windmills? And only someone with windmills on the brain could have failed to see that. It is unarguably a great ambition do good in this world. This world is seeped in evil and selfishness, hate and greed. You can see it today every turn, just turn on your TVs um, and uh, you can bask in it on the 24-hour news stations. But much like Don Quixote, our imaginings of what we can do are often ramblings of the deluded. We think we have a solution, we think we can bring uh, rescue, we think we can do good, but often we do more trouble than good. We rarely can see the root, the real root of the evil that we see, and often our solutions are superficial and ignorant. It's like seeing the poor and saying, you know what, what they need is more money. It is a bad solution. It is a lot more complex and a lot more involved to help the poor get out of poverty. Those of us obsessed with fighting windmills would do well to listen to today's story. Because it is a tremendous moment in Israel's history but there are no grandiose schemes, there are no warring armies, there are no kings and wizards, but nevertheless it's a beautiful moment of grace and of strength and welcome. If you've got a Bible, turn with me to Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2, and we're going to carry on where we left off last time. Uh, verse 15 says this. 
Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away. But Moses got up and he came to their rescue and he watered their whole flock. So if you've been following the story of Moses, you'll know it off by heart already, you'll know that uh, Moses intervened in the beating of one of his fellow Israelites and he ended up killing the slave driver. Uh, and uh, the Israelites saw him as a murderer and the Egyptians saw him as an anarchist and an insurrectionist. And uh, Moses, finding a home in neither with the Israelites or the Egyptians, makes a run for it, he legs it. And Moses finds himself amongst the Midianites. They were kind of like ancient cowboys or reindeer herders. Um, they were a people that continually moved across the landscape um, in search of pasture for their flocks of animals. And our hero Moses, exhausted, homeless, sits by this well. And then we are told a fascinating thing. I don't know whether you picked it up. I confess I never picked it up before to, uh, um, I looked at this. The nomad who he meets first is a priest. Did you notice that the daughters belonged to a priest? In Genesis 14, we are introduced to the very first priest. This royal priest called Melchizedek that Jesus is compared to. He's mysterious and uh, uh, Abraham pays homage to him. At the end of Genesis we find other priests but they are not godly priests. They are priests of Egypt. They are priests of uh, the sun god Ra and they serve Egyptian gods and it makes it very clear that these next priests that the Bible mentions are really no priests at all. This Midianite in Exodus chapter 2 is the only, the second person designated as priest in all of scripture. He is only the second person to perform a genuine and sacred function between Yahweh and the people of earth. He's the only person, uh, only the second person to have mentioned to interface between God and man. Israel may well have rejected Moses, this murderer, this person that's just making trouble for them. But you know, God has still got people in the land that love him and call him by name. Israel is not the only place where you find lovers of God. I don't know about you, but I've encountered a Christianity that is very eager to reduce who's called saved, to bring it down to just an elite few. There are churches out there that would say, unless you belong to this fellowship, I'm not even sure you're really in. Are you even saved unless you agree to my creeds or formulations? But we find here a God who loves to frustrate our uh, small-minded little limits because he's included the Midianites in these people that love God. And we find here a genuine, bona fide, legitimate priest of God outside the people of Israel. 
And that should give us a little bit uh, of comfort. God can use people that we wouldn't immediately recognise as belonging to him. He can even call them his own, even when they don't look like we imagine them to have to look like. So Moses runs away from two tribes, the Israelites and the Egyptians, who have written him off and called him a murderer, and he runs into another tribe, and guess what? That tribe loves God. This simple reference of priest should get us breathing a sigh of relief. Moses is playing right into God's plan. He elects it from the Israelites and the Egyptians who hate him, and he runs slap bang into the arms of the Midianites who love God too. It's a moment of divine provision, and we should be encouraged. We should be emboldened. This wasn't what Moses wanted. He wanted to be accepted by his Israelites. He wanted to uh, save his oppressed people. But God knew best, and he found him somewhere to run to. So as Moses wanders essentially into God's trap, uh, the priest's daughters go and get water for their dad's sheep. And it is an everyday domestic moment that would have been familiar to them all. You know, they've done this every day. As these ladies make their move, something that happens throughout all of history and ever after, the men cut in and just go, hold your horses, ladies, we come first. And, um, they assert themselves and the daughters leg it because the guys are bigger and stronger and probably more evil. And Moses sees this injustice. He clocks that these men are bullying these ladies. The word feminist hadn't been invented, but Moses sees something that is wrong. Last time, do you remember that Moses stood up for someone that was oppressed? It went really badly. He ended up killing the slave driver and being hated by uh, the Egyptians and the Israelites. You can forgive him for going, you know what? It all went terribly wrong. I'm now homeless and sad and alone. Um, I'm going to look after myself. You know, I'm going to have some me time. I'm going to uh, just uh, um, sort of look after my own mental well-being. But he's not that. He's not jaded. He's not cynical. He does not think, perhaps, uh, that he should wind his neck in. Moses, exile from Egypt, exile from the Israelites, rises again to the challenge of the evil that he sees. Turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 6, because Paul likes Moses. And uh, he writes this, that reminds us of him. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man and woman reaps what they sow. Whoever sows to please their flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. 
And in these great words, that Moses already knew before they'd written, let us not become weary in doing good, for the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. It is really easy to grow weary of doing good. There are so many reasons to stay in our houses. There are so many reasons to just spend money on ourselves. There are so many reasons to be filled with greed and hate and envy. People often do not behave like we want. And you give them money and they take it without saying thank you and then they spend it on things that you think they shouldn't. They make all sorts of poor decisions and so people retreat into themselves. However, Moses reminds us that there is another way possible. Paul, the author of Galatians, reminds us, don't give up. Don't give up doing good. Don't give up standing up for the oppressed. Don't give up for uh, looking out for the person that's bullied. Don't give up helping those that are less fortunate than yourselves. The harvest comes. Your act of kindness may be overlooked today. It might be rubbish or ignored or trodden underfoot, but it is part of Jesus's fast approaching rule. It is part of that kingdom. It is part of that story of the kingdom of God coming through. You may not be a winner in the world's eyes today, but don't grow weary of doing good. And so, do you notice Moses rescues people that love God here? I don't think he knew it, but these daughters belong to a tribe that followed Yahweh. And Paul, in Galatians 6, says, be good and kind, especially to the people of your faith. Perhaps start with them. If you don't know how to be kind, start with the people that don't know, um, that are struggling, but are no Lord, God, and King. So this morning I want you to be encouraged. Keep trying to be kind to people. It's hard. You'll have to uh, keep going at it. You won't always get the response that you want, but keep going because you are sowing into eternity. And if you don't know where to start, Start here. Come and make us cheese straws and give and participate and serve here. And then, as you get uh, more confident and emboldened, you're better at being kind to the people outside as well. Let me read the next bit to the story. Pete, do you mind closing, turning off the heat? I'm uh, actually baking. <laughs> um, no one else might be, but uh, I feel I'm slowly cooking. <laughs> so it says this, this is the next bit of the story. 
in Exodus chapter 2, verse 18. When the girls, these daughters of the priest, and they returned to, the, to Ruel, their father, and he asked them, Why have you returned so early today? And they answered, An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And I want, to hear, I want you to hear the enthusiasm of uh, the ladies here. There is a passion and excitement that they have seen something wonderful. And where is he? Ruel asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. And Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son. Moses named him Gershon, saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. I want you to enjoy that passage. It's not immediately obvious, some of the dynamics going on, but it is full of beauty if you look a little harder. There is a childish glee, there is humour, there is hospitality, there is family, and there is domestic bliss. All these things that Moses did not expect to encounter running away as a fugitive from the law. So Moses steps up and he rescues these daughters and he waters an entire flock. I don't know how big the flock is, but I don't think we're talking about one or two sheep. We're talking about providing water for a flock that sustains a tribe. And uh, so it's a great work of service he does. You know, he really puts his back into being kind to these people that he has never met before. The girls, they race home to share this story of heroes and villains uh, uh, with their dear godly dad. You know, he loves, uh, loves the Lord, he serves as a priest, and they come out. Dad, Dad, let me tell you this moment where this hero came in and saved us. Rua, or Jethro, we'll, we'll learn to call him uh, um, as the text goes on, he sits back and he loves his, his daughters have been rescued. They've come home early. He's, they've, uh, he had the pleasure of their company for longer today. And he goes, well, what's happened? And as they, can, as they complete their story, he goes, where is this saviour? You have been rescued by a man that stood up to the bullies. Where is he? Where is he, girls? What's happened to him? This person that's made a big difference in your life, that took his life in his hands, well, where is he? And the girls, I think, probably blush. It's a social faux pas. This guy's done a big thing for them. And so they run back to Moses and they drag this 40-year-old fugitive who has seen, uh, some bet, seen, seen, is seen some bad times and they drag poor Moses back to uh, Ruel's place, to this priest's gaff. In Egypt, Moses was reviled by both Egyptians and Israelites. They didn't appreciate him and they didn't welcome him. He was without a home. But with this Midianite priest, he finds welcome and appreciation. He is embraced. 
it is seen to savour in Moses' story. Sometimes, because the text is so small, we can quite easily pass over it. But it's a delight to read this. Moses is homeless and clanless and has no allies and no one to call his own. And in this wilderness, amongst these Midianite nomads, suddenly he finds something precious. And the song of the traveller is not just finished with him being um, toasted at the dinner table. There is more beauty to come. It seems that um, Moses and Zipporah fall in love, and the faithful priest of Midian, he blesses their marriage. Moses is an outsider, but regardless, he brings him in and goes, Come. You want to uh, uh, marry my daughter Zipporah, you guys want to set up home, I will bless that. And then, Moses and Zipporah get to welcome a new addition. There is a joy of marriage and a baby, a little life that they get to call their own, that they get to look after and nurture and bring up in life and love. And the boy is called Gershom, and it's connected with the Hebrew words stranger and there. And I'm afraid I don't think INIV does the name justice. The toddler's name basically implies there was a stranger there, but I'm no longer. Moses was a stranger in Egypt. He was neither Israelite nor Egyptian. Both of them detested him, both of them had written him off, both of them had cast him out. He was a fugitive. But amongst the Midianites, where there was no territory, he had found a home. In the most unlikeliest of places, Moses finds happiness. He finds somewhere to rest his head, he finds a home. It is little wonder that Moses stays in the wilderness for 40 years. He's in a place of domestic bliss. He knows the Israelites don't like him. He knows the Egyptians are hunting him. And he has found in the wilderness a wife and a child and family, and he is happy. And he stays there for 40 years. It's not very exciting for your Bible readings, but it's a moment of bliss a moment of harmony, a moment of uh, appreciation, on, of love. And this prospect and importance of home is not the preserve of Moses. It is not something that only he can enjoy, because this very idea of home is precious to God, and he promises the same benefits to each of us. Earlier, I read a rather distressing story of an alcoholic. Um, well, later on, um, in the same book, uh, we find something that I really like. It says this. Jesus says simply, make your home in me as I make mine in you. In John 14, John 15, verse 4. Home is not a heavenly mansion in the afterlife, but a safe place, right in the midst of our anxious world. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. 
home is that sacred space. It's her external or internal, where we don't have to be afraid, where we are confident of hospitality and love. In our society, we have many homeless people sleeping not only on the streets in shelters or in welfare hotels, but vagabonds who are in flight, never, who never come home to themselves. I wonder if you know anyone like this. They seek a safe place through alcohol or drugs, through security and success, through competence, through friends, through pleasure, through notoriety, through knowledge, or even a little religion. They have become strangers to themselves, people who have never had, a, uh, people who have an address, but are never at home, who never hear the voice of love or experience, the freedom of God's children. To those of us in flight, who are afraid to turn round lest we run into ourselves, Jesus says, you have a home. I am your home. Claim me as your home. You will find it to be the intimate place where I have found my home. It is right where you are in your innermost being, in your very heart. The author of Hebrews describes Jesus as the one who set free all those who have been held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. The gospel of freedom proclaims that death is an illusion, a phantom, the bogeymen of little children. Death is simply a transition into the one experience worthy of the name life. Here is the root Christian joy and mirth. It is why theologian Robert Hodgkins at the University of Chicago can insist Christians ought to be celebrating constantly. We ought to be preoccupied with parties, banquets, feasts and merriment. We ought to give ourselves over to veritable orgies of joy because we have been liberated from the fear of life and the fear of death. We ought to attract people to the church quite literally by the fun there is in being a Christian. Unfortunately, we sometimes become sober, serious, and isn't this true pompous? We fly in the face of freedom and grimly dig deeper into the trenches. In the words of Teresa of Avila, from silly devotions and sour-faced saints, spare us, O Lord. There is not a person in all of human history that hasn't craved somewhere where they are welcomed and appreciated. There isn't a person out there who doesn't want to belong, uh, to find a niche where they fit perfectly. Regardless of our background, our history, our heritage, Jesus invites us into his family. He would make his home with us and we will in his presence know love and joy forever. And you friends, when you find that place of welcome, when you find that place of home and security, taking on Pharaoh, the Egyptian army and all the Egyptian gods seems very much like child's play. And I think this time of domestic bliss, this moment of home, is what helps Moses take on an entire Egyptian empire. Please bow your heads.
Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you would make your home in us, with us. That Jesus, you are not somewhere else, but that you are in our hearts. Holy Spirit, we thank you for that. Lord God, I pray that we would uh, remember where our home is again. That we would remember that we are not fugitives and strangers. That we were strangers there, but now we are home. Lord Jesus, I pray for anyone that, that doesn't know that peace and security, that they would encounter Jesus and invite him in. Lord God, I pray for those that are in that place already, that we would stop listening to the stories and deceits the world tells, and that we would remember again that with you there is life and life to the full. Lord God, I pray this in Jesus' name.